So we spent our last episode really exploring uh, Chile's constitution-making process, and uh, I believe we released the episode just a few days before the vote was going to take place. So it was a bit of a cliffhanger. Uh, So what happened, Tom, at that vote? So the Chile constitution has gone down in defeat. 62% against, 38% for a massive defeat by electoral standards, uh, beyond even what the polls predicted, and all the polls did predict defeat. Um, So that's really interesting. The issue we were talking about last week on the podcast, the question is what happens next? And as I understand it, the Chilean political parties are going to get together and negotiate some sort of constitutional reforms now to meet some of the concerns that motivated the two-year process. Uh, But obviously, it's going to be a very different set of reforms than the extremely progressive set that were put forward in this constitutional draft. Why did it fail? Well, you know, I think at the end, the constitutional convention membership was far to the left of Chilean society. And they were trying to transform this society rather than simply meet it where it was. Yeah, so, you know, obviously there's so many commentators with so many opinions, um, but I guess, you know, the first thing that I thought uh, when the vote came in was just how many people had spent so much time really working on this process and to really appreciate uh, the amount of work and time, you know, the members of the Constitutional Commission uh, have really been living and breathing this constitution, you know, as well as a large part of the country. And I think one thing we really saw in last week's episode is just how much Uh, regular citizens were thinking about it too. Uh, But this result also, you know, it's tricky to draw too many conclusions, I think. Um, You know, it is possible. And of course, there were a lot of people saying that the commission itself was far left uh, to Chilean society. It's difficult to really state what a society thinks. uh, And who knows if the people that agreed with the content of the constitution were as involved as those who weren't. That's always a tricky thing. And then there's also optics and social media and other forms of communication, right? You know, how do so many people really communicate with each other? And I know that members of the commission uh, really thought this through, but found it to be a struggle. You know, how do you communicate with a community that's in rural Chile? Um, They would create these commercials about the content of the constitution. And there's also what the press decides uh, to really focus on. But this is tricky. And so I really don't know. You know, I, I don't know if I'm prepared to conclude that the content of the Constitution were too progressive for Chilean society, or if it was about process, or if it was about communication. But I think what we can conclude is that constitution-making processes are difficult, complicated, and unpredictable events, uh, and important ones for countries, but they don't always turn out the way that you think that they're going to. And so this is now Chile's uh, second process uh, in trying to uh, revise its constitution in the last decade. Uh, So we'll see what happens uh, now. And um, the optimist in me thinks that these processes are useful no matter what. So there was a forced and compelled public conversation about Chilean values and Chilean society. And that is all going to find itself somewhere, right? That's going to manifest itself somewhere, whether it's in a new constitution or laws or other elements of uh, how the society is structured. So let's see. (laughs) 
So, Tom, we are three episodes into our season on the right to equality. I think it's been pretty good so far, don't you? Well, I think some people might say we've made one huge mistake. Oh no, already? Well, we've been talking about the right to equality, but should we really be talking about the right to equity? So there's a big difference between equality and equity. Equality suggests, oh, everyone should get the same amount. The problem with that, not everybody's starting out from the same place. Hmm, I feel an apple metaphor coming on. So, if I have five apples and there are four teachers in the lounge... Oh my God, not the apples again? Well, just give me a chance. We wouldn't want to give one apple to each person if some teachers had already eaten while others are starving. Or give an apple to someone who has enough money for lunch while another does not. But the implementation process actually presents us with a paradox of sorts, right? If we believe that human rights should apply to all humans, how can we institute a right to equality when getting there would require treating certain people unequally? due to their advantages or disadvantages or even decisions they've made before distributing our coveted apples. This has obviously become a heated debate in the United States. As the Black Lives Matter movement gains more momentum, there are calls for equity in all sectors of life. So what is equity? Well, tonight, finally, we know what it is. Equity, it turns out, is racism. We need to make the issue of racial equity not just an issue for any one department of government. It has to be the business of the whole of government. That's why I issued, on the first days, my whole government executive order that will, for the first time, advance equity for all throughout our federal policies and institutions. And what happens when you have multiple groups in a society that could equally claim entitlements under a right to equality? How do you find a way to balance equality and equity when there's limited resources to really find your way towards fairness and justice? which of course are contested ideas. And what do other countries' experiences with balancing equality and equity look like? And what can they teach us about how to make things better in America? I'm Claudia Flores, law professor at Yale Law School. I'm Tom Ginsberg, a professor of law at the University of Chicago. And this is Entitled, a podcast about why rights matter and what's the matter with rights. When it comes to equity, the legal framework countries often use to address the disadvantages between groups is called affirmative action. This is the idea that we have to take uh, affirmative action. We have to take positive steps to get all groups to basically the same starting place in conditions when there's historically determined inequality. In the United States, we often debate this when it comes to race, uh, but it's obviously also appropriate to think about in regard to gender, ethnicity, disability, lots of different things for which we might want to not simply treat everyone fairly, but actually treat some groups unequally as to remedy the past discrimination. In America, the need and use of affirmative action on the issue of race and ethnicity has been pretty obvious. The U.S. has a privileged white, and I'll put that in quotes because, of course, it's more complicated, but there's a privileged white majority and a disadvantaged minority of black and brown people who have historically and presently been denied resources, rights, access to opportunity, really from birth through adulthood. And as our first guest will explain, it's not so simple in some other countries. My name is Diane Shah. I'm an assistant professor at the Faculty of Law, National University of Singapore. And here I teach uh, constitutional law and comparative law. Dan Shah is from Malaysia, a country where the experience with affirmative action around race and ethnicity is actually in a way opposite to that of the U.S. In Malaysia, the majority group in the country, which has been there the longest, are the Malays. But they are actually the ones who need affirmative action, while uh, one minority group in the country, the Chinese, 
is really thriving, so it's complicated ethnically. The Malays and other indigenous groups are known as Bumiputras, or sons of the soil. They make up about 60% of the nation's population. About 25% are of Chinese ethnic origins, and just under 10% are of Indian descent. So in the U.S., you have what is often called a non-white minority, uh, historically marginalized, who seek affirmative action to uh, rise to the same status as the current majority. In Malaysia, the longer-term inhabitants who have economically and politically fallen behind are the majority, and they seek affirmative action to catch up to a successful minority. The Chinese, for instance, are in control of the major businesses, supply chain, uh, and that the Malays lack opportunities and access to these uh, business sectors. And therefore, we've had these conversations over and over again that, you know, the Chinese continue to c control key sectors of the economy relating to entrepreneurship, business, uh, supply chains to, to, to resources. Whereas the Malays are seen, these are all stereotypes, the Malays are seen as, you know, less entrepreneurial, you know, given civil service jobs. They, they, and, and indeed, the Malays do occupy or, or take a, a huge chunk um, of the percentage in civil service jobs or, or opportunities, whereas the private sector is dominated and occupied by uh, the Chinese. So the tension in Malaysia came to a head on May 13th, 1969, following an election in which two new parties that were majority Chinese gained seats relative to the governing party, which was majority Malay. And that provoked fears, of course, that the majority would lose power. Ethnic riots broke out. The NAP was introduced in the aftermath of the 13th May 1969 race riots. Malaysia's affirmative action policy has been a controversial issue since it was first implemented in 1971. Better known as the New Economic Policy, it's a system based on providing social and economic privileges to the majority Malay population. So the way this actually works is that you have set-asides or quotas for various groups, an upper limit on the number of Chinese who can get into university, government contracts, government employment, have strong preferences for the Bumiputra and disincentives for the Chinese and Indians to join those jobs. Originally, the NEP articulated a two-prong approach. First, poverty reduction irrespective of race. And second, reduction and eventual elimination of racial economic disparities, essentially to remove the identification of race with economic function. So this affirmative action program, it seeks to encourage the Bumiputra's access to and participation in higher education, business and enterprise management and control, high-ranking positions or occupations in the public and private sectors, as well as wealth ownership. One goal that we keep hearing in Malaysia is to attain 30% equity ownership for the Bumiputra. And finally, another emphasis that we have heard from the NEP since the 1970s is to create this Malay commercial and industrial community. So these are just a couple of examples. How do you think the policy is perceived by the minority groups? I mean, you probably have friends across these ethnic lines and, you know, do people talk about it? Or is it one of these things people never talk about? 
What's the perception? Oh, I, I mean, obviously, there are within the minorities sections or group that understand that the NEP uh, is important and it is needed. They understand the goal and the objective behind it. What has become a source of frustration and, you know, uh, what, what's the resentment is that the policy seems to be in perpetuity <laughs> almost. Uh, initially, it was only supposed to uh, uh, last until 1990, but it kept being extended and extended. The second part is the idea that, well, this is Malaysia. We are born here, all of us, but why do some people, especially in the majority community, get a leg up from the state and not us, uh, especially in the minority uh, community? The ethnic Chinese and Indian communities have long claimed the NEP is unjust. So for me, uh, Tom and, and Claudia, all this has actually become part of a unhealthy vicious cycle of discrimination and reactions to discrimination in terms of how the NAP has been implemented and the consequences or the impact on racial relations. So for instance, some Malays perceive and buy the rhetoric that the economy is still controlled by the Chinese and they keep being told this in order to justify the continuation of the NEP. So they feel this existential threat uh, that somehow they would lose out socially, economically and politically and in the end somehow they would lose their homeland to the economically dominant minority Chinese. The other races, minorities feel that they are discriminated by state policies, unjustifiably discriminated by state policies. So for them, we are on our own. The Malays will be taken care of by the state, employed by the state in the civil service. And in any case, even if they have an, uh, a good education, you know, a degree, educated at a higher uh, education institution locally or abroad, the perception is that because of this NEP, they are, the Malays are perceived as most likely unworthy recipients of such opportunities to begin with. And therefore, they are somehow incompetent. So the reaction is to narrow, from the other communities, the reaction is to narrow access to employment or opportunities in the private sector because the Malays are perceived as already being taken care of by the state. Uh, by the state. So this is the social side of the consequences, which to some extent has some bearing on the uh, economic side too, in my opinion. Would you say the NEP has worked? Like on what dimensions has it worked and where has it come up short? There's been a lot of criticisms of, of the NEP and I'll be the first to, to criticize the NEP on, on a variety of, of levels. But I do want to say that the NEP has at least provided the Bumiputra with a degree of upward social mobility, uh, producing capable, highly skilled workers and professionals. And to some extent, it has also reduced intergroup uh, economic differences. Uh, where it has fallen short, uh, increasingly we, 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 we become aware of this, is the distribution of wealth, not just between ethnic groups, but within uh, ethnic groups. So Dan, can I ask you, I mean, you, you, you were sort of critical of the NEP. What 
and 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 you mentioned that you think it's just creating it's creating a, a circle, right? Of just sort of mm. a, a feeling of you know being discriminated against, and then the affirmative measures that are supposed to remedy it, and then there's resentment about the affirmative measures. What is your I mean, what is your policy prescription for a context like Malaysia? What what does equality look like in that context? What is it that the different ethnic groups should be fighting for? I would say, uh, Claudia, needs based affirmative action, a program that is not especially or specifically identified with race, needs-based. I think it's also useful to go back to some of the issues with the NEP. So for instance, uh, resources and opportunities are finite. And in practice, the allocation mechanism of the NEP has come at the expense of other groups, even though the rhetoric is that you know we enlarge the economic pie and no one will be left behind. So there's an overpromise there by advocates of the NEP that preferential treatment of the Bumiputra will not come at the expense of minorities. So for me, the more that they keep telling themselves that, the more that they will be disengaged from the fact that, as I said, resources and opportunities are finite and that you have to accept that by uh, implementing these policies, you are leaving out the minority communities. One reaction to that is it sure sounds a lot like discourse in the United States. Yes. I mean, these yes. themes are universal. Yeah, that dynamic of, um, well, first of all, the the group that's not being taken care of by the state, just feeling like, okay, I guess I'm on my own. But then the resentment that then is translated into thinking that a group is incompetent, right? So this idea that because they need help, even if you know the reason they need help, that you just assume that there's something inherent about the group that they can't succeed on their own. I think the one thing that's really different here, though, Tom, that I want to think through with you is... The conversation in Malaysia is not about disadvantage, really, right? The conversation is, we were here first, I think, and now there's this group that seems to be doing really well because we were here first and somehow have some kind of ownership over the country, or at least entitlement to the state, that we should have special assistance. That's kind of the way that I'm hearing uh, what Diana is saying. That is different than what the dynamic in the U.S., which is that it's incredibly well-documented, exhaustively well-documented, that the black and brown communities that we're talking about, and we can focus only on African-Americans, have actively been deprived of opportunities and access to power. And so affirmative action is really trying to correct that. It's not so much who's entitled to the state and who isn't. Yeah. Clearly, in Malaysia, this is about national identity. And there's many other aspects of their system, like perhaps one, you know, way that maps onto the U.S. discourse is these kind of, you know, far right white nationalist groups that talk about replacement theory. Oh, my God, other people are coming in and they're going to replace us and we're the original legacy inhabitants or whatever Newt Gingrich calls us. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And, and that's that's what where where I was where I was sort of thinking to go is that I do think that behind and actually quite explicitly in the white nationalist movement, there is this sort of claim to uh, an entitlement to the U.S. So if that group is falling behind and we said at the beginning, you know, that there is this white majority that does better. But as you and I have discussed many times, it's far more complicated than that. There are significant part of the white population. And I always put this in quotes because I still find confusing what race and ethnicity actually are. Um, but there is a population that is self-identified as white in the U.S. that actually isn't doing well at all. And their objective is definitely linked to an entitlement to the state and to an identity as an American as different from all of the people that came after, right? Uh, white people right now are about 63% of the United States and shrinking. And that means we're becoming increasingly 
a so-called majority-minority country. I mean, California is already this way, the city of Chicago. There are a lot of places where minorities are the majority if you add them all up. And that obviously creates some um, anxieties, but also, of course, great possibilities. And one of our colleagues here at the University of Chicago, a renowned political scientist, runs regular surveys to study how these shifting dynamics are changing majority-minority politics in America as well. What I'm calling a kind of politics of vulnerability. That's Kathy Cohen. She is a professor in our political science department and former director of the Center for the Study on Race. She's the author of two books, The Boundaries of Blackness, AIDS and the Breakdown of Black Politics, and Democracy Remixed, Black Youth and the Future of American Politics. I'm trying to write a book about this very slowly, which is the ways in which we see white Americans articulating a positionality of vulnerability. You will not replace us! Right, they are losing political power, they're losing jobs, they're losing status. One people, one nation, and immigration! We see books about deaths of despair. Deaths of despair, alcohol-related liver disease, suicide, drug overdose. That exists within white communities, and so Jennifer Richardson talks about the democratization of discomfort, right? That there is a way in which the control, power, and status that white Americans felt in the past, right, that they're losing and it's being articulated as, you know, we have a question on one of our surveys and we ask of, of white respondents, do you feel like you're facing as much discrimination as black Americans or other minority groups? And increasingly about 50% of whites say yes to that, including young whites, right? So I think there is this sense of we are a minority because in fact, we're losing uh, in terms of the demographic struggle, but we're also losing power. And that creates this kind of narrative of vulnerability um, that we see increasingly being articulated in, in media, but also from politicians and increasingly from average white Americans. This has really complicated the debate about equity versus equality in the United States. But what makes the American situation unique is our history and ongoing condition of racial discrimination. I think, in fact, that in this moment of pressure, right, in this moment of kind of movement building, in the moment of protests and demands that, in fact, the recognition of, for example, Black people be acknowledged and that, in fact, we think about how we enhance and build up these communities, that the gesture that politicians will point to is one of equality, right? Which is to say, well, let's figure out what are the processes where we can treat people as equal individuals without having to address, right, the history of harm and damage and exclusion that folks have lived through, that their ancestors have lived through, and that they're asking for reparations, for, for which they're asking for reparations, right? And that, I think, is the difference between, okay, let's think about training the police so that they don't, quote, unquote, pay attention to race, or they don't over-police, or they don't do, or aren't engaged in, quote, unquote, bad behaviors, where we see this as, or some people see this as kind of bad apples, versus, Let's look at the history of policing, right? And the damage and destruction it has done in communities of color. And we have to repair that before we can think about the kind of pursuit of equality. 
When most people think about affirmative action, they think about it in terms of political and civil rights, that is, actions by the state that help a disadvantaged population have equal access, for example, to education or government employment. And in our last episode, we debated whether equality of political rights was more foundational and should be prioritized over socioeconomic rights. I wonder how the calculus of that choice may change in the context of racial equity in America. There's a debate on the left right now over whether proponents of racial equity should be highlighting and foregrounding the racial disparities or if a focus on class and wealth inequality would be more effective at changing the situation for minorities in the United States. And I think this is a really difficult conversation, right, Tom? I mean, you and I have it uh, as as we're doing this podcast, but as Kathy just explained, it's hard. It's hard to to sort of really take race out of the equation while at the same time recognizing that race is not the only thing we should be talking about. Yeah, there's no reason to take race out of the equation completely. But I, for one, would take an empirical approach. You know, you start with class because that's one that's widely resonant with people and in which you're actually getting at people's life chances. And then you have to add some affirmative action for African-Americans in particular. We know that at every level of income, African-Americans have different outcomes, different, you know, experiences uh, that, you know, still draw on the country's bad history. Uh, and this, you know, even gets to like healthcare disparities, even for rich African-Americans. So like, you know, that seems to me to make a lot of sense. What bothers me is that, you know, because of interest group activity, you know, every group wants their piece of it. And of course, that makes the, you know, rump uh, folks who, you know, white middle class and upper class people who are not included, especially the males, you know, then they feel ever more like their, their share of the pie is, is apt actually, or their life chances are actually objectively being affected by this and it creates resentment. So, I mean, it's a really complicated thing, but I, I would think morally a more focused and targeted program would be more desirable. I asked Kathy how she thinks socioeconomic rights come into this debate on racial equity. You know, in our conversations with with Elizabeth Anderson, you know, she she wrote that seminal "What is the point of equality?" and and part of the argument there is that there are certain fundamental rights that need to be in existence for someone to be able to be considered a functional democratic citizen, right? Someone who can really and truly participate. And the conversation that we are often having is, what are those things, right? And what is this basic? functioning level of rights. Um, and then you have Martha, you know, who we're also talking to, you know, with her capabilities theory and and trying to figure out what the goals look like uh, set against what are these basic things that are needed. Um, so I guess I, I, and we don't talk about socioeconomic rights in this country. You know, we have some socioeconomic entitlements, but not even really, and they're not talked about that way. So I guess I, I'm curious to hear from you What are the role of socioeconomic rights? Is that a conversation we need to have? Is there anywhere to go without without actually acknowledging that those have to exist? And what is this foundation we're looking for so that we can start thinking about what equity might look like in the context of racial justice? Okay, I feel like you should answer that question first, right? Can I do that? I don't want to. I mean, I, let's think together. How about that? I mean, because right. I think that I've, I've been tricked. Tom, you asked the question. <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, really, do I think that there has to be a kind of socioeconomic rights or guarantees? Absolutely. Right. I'm going to take a long 
route to get to your question, I hope. But I did a study with another scholar, Matt Ludick, who's really great, on political knowledge. And we suspected that how you lived informs what you pay attention to in terms of the politics that matter in your life. There's a kind of standing literature on political knowledge and political science that says, you know, there's a liberal conceptualization of the state and certain people have more knowledge of that than others. And it usually is white people have more knowledge of that. Things like how many Supreme Court justices are there, basic things. We said, well, what about the carceral state? The ways in which punishment and surveillance and regulation are used against people. And we did this thing where we asked about people's knowledge of who'd been killed by the police. And what do we find? We find that young black people have much more knowledge of that type of information than they do of a kind of liberal conception of the state. So I want to contend that how people live informs how they understand the state, how they understand politics, what they think the state will do for them, and their kind of proclivity to want to engage with the state. We also know from Weaver and Lerman and lots of others that where there is significant or hyper-policing, it can often lead to diminish rates of engagement in terms of voting, but other forms of political engagement. If, in fact, we are committed to equality and thinking about the concept of equity, what do people need guaranteed to really allow themselves to be free and participatory citizens? So I go back to that list again. I think they need to be guaranteed relief from food and housing and income insecurity. Right. You need to believe, in fact, that the state, as well as your neighbors, are, are invested in guaranteeing that not only you survive, but you have an opportunity to thrive as an individual, that you need quality schooling that is largely equal across geographic areas and that speaks to your condition and your identities and your history. We need the opportunity to run candidates that look like and speak for the concerns of individuals in different neighborhoods, in different parts of the state, and in different parts of the country. If you're getting a lot out of this podcast, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Big Brains. Big Brains brings you the engaging stories behind the pioneering research and pivotal breakthroughs reshaping our world. Change how you see the world and keep up with the latest academic thinking with Big Brains, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. This conversation reminds me that there's another nation that's had somewhat of a similar experience to the United States in attempting to transition from an overtly racially discriminatory society to one that is equal for all. And of course, I'm talking about South Africa. The idea that one group of people is inherently superior is not new. Today, however, almost everywhere in the world, discrimination on such grounds is either formally disowned or legally discouraged. South Africa is an exception. South Africa is a country which had a system for many decades called apartheid. The policy of apartheid, literally separateness, has been elevated by the government of South Africa from a mere theory of racial superiority to the law of the land. As the late Prime Minister, Dr. Henrik Verwoerd, put it, we want to keep South Africa white. Keeping it white can mean only one thing, namely, 
white domination. That's actually something that the United States had as well in the Jim Crow South. They're basically very similar systems. In a society ruled by a white minority, the African has become a virtual alien in his own country. He cannot own property. He cannot mix with whites in any social situation. Intermarriage is strictly prohibited. The United States, of course, different schools, different facilities, so-called separate but equal, which of course was not really equal. In South Africa, it involved black people only being able to live in certain areas. In order to maintain a huge cheap labor force, the government has decreed that he may not leave his hometown without permission. Having inferior schools, needing a pass, to go into white areas. So the physical separation and segregation in a hierarchical way. Every aspect of his daily life, from restrooms to the education of his children to the cemetery where he is buried is strictly segregated by skin color alone. That's what apartheid was. But that system of apartheid officially ended around the end of the Cold War. Both Nelson Mandela and South Africa had traveled a long way to get to this moment. More than 300 years of white domination ended for good with the swearing in of Nelson Mandela as this African nation's first black president. So help me God. And South Africa actually drafted and approved a new constitution in 1996. As we close the chapter of exclusion, and a chapter of heroic struggle. We reaffirm our determination to build a society of which each of us can be proud. Which has really been uh, sort of a model for a lot of countries around the world for a constitution that's focused on uh, the protection of human rights and equality. With South Africa, equality was number one. That's Al B. Sachs. He is a white South African who was involved in the freedom struggle for black South Africans, and he worked with the African National Congress. You guys, it was liberty, certainly not equality. It was a Canadian judge who spoke to me once about the firstness of your First Amendment. Liberty, freedom from restraint, speech, religion. And you had to fight a damn civil war to get equality uh, almost a century later. And, and then you had segregation, separate but equal. So it was almost another century before you got brown. So in a sense, everything we did was to avoid the American experience. So Albie is actually considered one of the primary architects of the interpretations of the new South African constitution. And his focus was very different from the US focus. It was equality. Start with equality. So the first substantive clause in our constitution deals with equality. And we spent a lot of time crafting it to to capture what we regarded as the crucial ingredients of equality. Now, we we were very keen to establish what is now being referred to as substantive equality, not just formal equality. Very keen to establish equality that looked at people as they lived as they experience the law, not to fit people into the law and the formalities of the law, but to develop a law that catered for people and their pains and their sorrows and their indignities and their hopes and aspirations. And so the idea was not just to think about whether or not similar groups of people were being treated in similar ways, but that the real lived experience of people was one of equality. 
we're involving uh, imagining not just a bit of affirmative action here and a little bit there and a little lift up here and so on. It's as though our whole, whole country had to be transformed. Uh, our constitution then grants equal protection, but there's an intervening section that says the state may take action to remedy, to, to assist sections of the community, of the people who have suffered from disadvantage, and I think it says on the grounds of uh, race, gender, and disability. I think the three that are mentioned. Certainly in practice, those are the three, the three that are used. So there's express authorization without using the language of affirmative action. Is express authorization for it. Yeah, they also have a wonderful jurisprudence on social and economic rights. So the fear of American judges is always that, well, you know, we don't want to get involved in adjudicating, you know, rights to education and, and welfare and such, because that's going to force us to make these kind of almost budgetary choices about how much the society spends on X or Y good. And what South Africa's court has done is basically articulate a powerful procedural argument where the government doesn't have to provide every single person with a house or a, you know, a car or a, a medical care in a situation where the budget just simply wouldn't allow it. But what the government does have to do is to show that it has programs that are seeking to extend those rights to people. And so that's a very different way of approaching rights, actually, than what we've seen in American jurisprudence. I think there's a lot to be learned from that kind of approach. It actually requires what he calls empathy, right? So a real interest, an affirmative interest on the part of judges and policymakers to think about the experiences of these disadvantaged groups of people, whether we're talking about race or gender or even class, and think about how to use the law in a productive way to move a society towards equality or as we're talking about equity. Uh, I remember debates with colleagues of mine at the University of Cape Town. I was a law professor there as well as at the University of the Western Cape at that stage. And they said, let's go for overriding exclusion of any form of unfair discrimination. And, and my colleagues were saying, don't narrow the list. Leave it open and leave it to the judges to determine what that list should be. I threw my hands up in horror, or my one and a half hands up in horror. And I said, no, you can't leave it to the judges. You've got to stake out the areas in a very clear way for the most vulnerable groups. They're often unpopular groups. And judges throughout the world, they've been brilliant, wonderful, forward-looking, empathetic judges. But by and large, judges haven't been great in terms of the capacity for empathy and understanding the pain of others. So I insisted on a list, uh, and it shouldn't be a closed list. And that gave different civil society groups a chance to have their say. So we ended up with a very expansive clause. By the way, this is one of the reasons that diversity in the judiciary turns out to be really important. We know even in the United States, that the composition of a panel of judges will affect the outcome. So if you have a female judge hearing, you know, sex discrimination cases, that person is bringing 
a certain amount of experience to bear in the deliberations, which probably mean that you're going to get a different outcome and probably one that's more sensitive to the um, interests of the claimant. Uh, same with race, clearly. So it's kind of a second order thing, but it does mean that we need diversity in the implementing, you know, instrumentalities of government with regard to equality. Which actually brings us to the second point. So one of the ways that South Africa decided to address this issue of equality is through quotas. Uh, and quotas can mean a lot of different things, but essentially uh, it's a certain percentage of a body that's reserved for a particular group of people. So if we're talking about a legislature, you can have quotas for women, you can have quotas for different ethnic groups. And this is a way of ensuring equal and fair representation. At the end of the day, I think this is what many Americans are talking about when they're talking about equity, even if they don't say it. So for example, the Voting Rights Act was put in place to ensure that African Americans would have a certain representation in the Congress. And, you know, the African American percentage of the population now is about 13%, and that's about the representation in Congress. It's not a hard quota, but we feel like, you know, it would be, um, you know, inappropriate to have a, a percentage of African American representation that was far below their population. And so increasingly, you're actually finding countries incorporating quotas into their constitutions, especially the ones that have been drafted in the last 20 years or so. Uh, and quotas are really controversial. So some of them, some people consider quotas uh, a necessary tool to remedy discrimination because discrimination is so uh, built into our social structure that the only way to really get people to these positions is by reserving space for them. Uh, other people think it's a blunt tool that can be really harmful and at the extreme is actually anti-democratic. Claudia, I mean, we've been talking about, you know, various aspects of equality and equity. So the first thing I want to say is I'm still not sure what that latter term means. What does it mean to you? I don't know. I, I really struggle with these two terms, too. And uh, and when we've started talking about these terms differently, I actually did some Google searching and people define equality and equity in so many different ways. Um, but it seems like what we've decided is that equality is the sort of the sameness of material conditions or of other kinds of conditions. Let's call that equality. And equity is more about fairness. So that everyone has the same chance, the same elements that would have gotten you to a certain place. Um, the, the reason this gets tricky is because if you think you have equity, but then in the end you don't have equality, then you have to attribute the lack of equality to something. And you can either attribute the lack of equality to differences in choices, right? You know, some people might say um, that you will always see a difference in the number of women in the workplace because they're always going to make choices for their families, right? That's one argument that we often get. But the counter argument is, well, why are women making these choices that prioritize their families? Is it about societal expectation? Is it about some kind of a culturization? Is it something that we can actually remedy through decisions we make in society? So I honestly, Tom, don't really know how to separate out those terms. Yeah, I sometimes think people talk about them as if one has to do with equality of opportunity, which is, of course, a very old American value and one that I think is deeply ingrained in our society, and equality of outcome, which is one which Americans tend to be less comfortable with because it involves the state sort of, you know, allocating things, allocating social goods according to race and gender and things like this. And so, you know, I know that 
experts will have their own definitions. I'd like to offer my own for equity, why I think equity is important. And it has to do not with the idea um, that we should have equality of outcome, but another use of the term equity, which has to do with ownership, right? We say if you have equity in something, you are an owner of it. And I actually think it's important that society strive to have everyone, especially the most marginalized people, have a sense of ownership in the society. So equity interests for all our citizens is something that I think we ought to strive for. And how you get there, that's complicated. Certainly, equality of opportunity is a starting place and maybe not sufficient. But I would view equity um, as an outcome but not necessarily just, you know, taking all the goods of society and dividing them up by the government. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think um, I think that gets at the themes that are emerging from our conversations with Deanne and Kathy and Albie. So there's the kind of positive there, there's there's the yin and the yang to this. Right. So so the the, the negative question here is about fairness. In the Malaysian context, in the U.S. context, in the South African context, unfairness is at the root of a lot of the claims, right? So like in the Malaysian context, the Malays think it's unfair that there is an immigrant population that's actually doing better than they are. In the U.S. context, there's an unfairness to the fact that the black population or the immigrant population are not being given the same opportunities or don't have the same opportunities. And in the South African context, it was very clear that the black South African population was being denied something. So that's that's the unfairness element. And that's often the justification for affirmative measures. The flip side, the Yang, which I think is what you're articulating is a positive vision of what a society should look like and and uh, and what we need to do to actually reach that positive vision. And the way that you put it, which is, you know, that all groups should be invested, right? That they should be meaningfully invested. I think that's that's also very similar to Elizabeth Anderson's in What is the Point of Equality, that you should have meaningful democratic participation and that you can't have that without some kind of basic rights. It's similar to what Kathy is saying, too, that you need socioeconomic rights for the black population to truly participate. And I think there's actually even a parallel there between Martha's capabilities theory, which is, you know, that there are these sort of um, there's a positive vision of how we want society to uh, maximize or assist the individual to reach their full potential. So in, in, in all of these situations, I think we have a positive vision of a society. And I actually think that's often what's missing in our debates about affirmative action here in the U.S. is this idea that we are trying to be a certain kind of society. And these these affirmative measures are pushing us towards that, not just focusing on the unfairness debate, which I think is what ends up breeding resentment and people feeling left out. If we all understood that the idea is that no one is left out, maybe that would make us all a little more empathetic with each other. 